Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Paul Callahan. Hello. And Rachel Connor. Hello there. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tons of news tonight, but um, after that, we are going to be speaking with one of Australia's most famous Twitch streamers, Luminum. And uh, you'll want to stick around for that because they've got very interesting stories to share um, about the experience of playing games online, uh, particularly with an LGBTIQA plus uh, angle on what experiences might be in terms of harassment um, and hopefully also enjoyment of those games. So we'll get to that later in the show. Um, I hope uh, Adam Christou is listening because I'd love to pick his brains about it later and have really been enjoying his Game Changers segments later. Metroid Prime, that was sensational. Um, did you hear that they're, they're re, they've re kind of factored Metroid Prime? Is <laughs> Remi- that the way to say it? Remastered, I think. Remastered? Yeah, I have. And it's, it's, um, that's one of those moments where you realise how old you are, like, because <laughs> I very clearly remember playing the original um, and watching the watching the videos of the of the remastered version, I'm just like, oh, is this is this something I need to spend seventy dollars on? And there's a little part of me, there's a little kid's part of me yes. inside that's like, of course it is, yeah, yeah. of course it is, <laughs> do it. I agree, and um, Christo definitely fed that compulsion that was already link, <laughs> you know starting to form there. Anyway, that's fantastic. Hey, what's going on in news at the moment? I wanted to kick off with federal government. Uh, Open consultation on the next national cybersecurity strategy. So glamorous, Vanessa. So I glamorous. Know. Look, it it might sound dry to some people, but I think that more and more people are realizing how these sorts of um, security functions are impacting their everyday life. You know, it's hard to talk to anyone without them. Um, these days, knowing someone who's been a victim of some sort of online scam or some uh, vulnerability or some corporate um, sort of leak of data, some unintentional breach, uh, it's very common. You yep. know, we don't need to be alarmist about any of it, but it's such a fast-moving space. It's no surprise that the government is going to set up a new national office for cybersecurity. It's going to sit within home affairs and it's happening as soon as next month. Um, they wrote this in February 27th, so as soon as this month, <laughs> as soon as March. Um, and it's going to be part of a new seven-year cybersecurity strategy that they've also started consulting on. Uh, so it's it's early if you want to work in this space. It's happy days for you. Uh, it's very green time. Um yeah. Yeah, and comes off the back of uh, conversations obviously started last year. And yeah, to reiterate your point, Vanessa, this is a massive sort of challenge uh, and a problem. But the the Australian federal government has set a target to become the most cyber secure country in the world by 2030, which obviously forms the backbone of that seven year 
Yeah. And the global context for this is that, look, we are not at the front edge of this at the moment. You'd say that, you know, we're significantly behind Europe in terms of having something like GDPR privacy protections, although we've been leaning more in that direction. We've been trending that way. Uh, All the lawyers I know who work in this sort of space are both excited and um, a little trepidatious about how much work is around the corner as they get ready to adjust to new regulatory kind of frameworks and reforms and all sorts of requirements for for companies. Um, But we'd have to think that, you know, if they get this right, the consumer will win out and the individual person will win out and the the activist and the student and all sorts of people um, whose data is out there in Australia. Yeah, and look, I think what was also interesting about this this ambition um, about being the you know the twenty thirty target mm. is is really about positioning Australia within that leadership role globally and specifically within the kind of the Asia Pacific region as well. So it's it's well, they not... want to attract key talent and they want to attract all these companies and you sort of need to have the right um, environment to be able to allow them to thrive. Yeah, so building out. It's clearly part of a, a larger, uh, you know, soft power strategy yes. and technology strategy and technology yes. growth and industry strategy as well. So, um, yeah, so interesting it's a little, times. a little sexier than it initially sounds <laughs> is where we Vanessa, you have that. convinced me Thank you. about how glamorous that actually is. Thank you. Thank you. What has been catching your eye this week? Um, so, I mean, Meta just ha- recently had a big internal uh, set of announcements where they laid out the roadmap uh, of the next four years of their A. AR, XR, VR hardware, um, and also interestingly, some announcements about their AI strategies as well. I think what struck me the most instantly about this was someone's trying to do glasses again. <laughs> so what's going to happen with they, that? They are bringing, so they're looking at bringing out uh, AR glasses uh, in 2027, um, and this idea of a neural interface smartwatch that will help you control these devices use it using gestures but yep they're they're working with uh ar glasses and neural interfaces um they're really positioning this as the next big hardware platform breakthrough um system that we're all going to be using and they have to right because they went out there audaciously and said meta is going to be everything and yet there were really no ways existing already for people to you know um in every house interact with that level of environment and i think the you know the vr it's it's interesting we're sort of seeing you know new vr hardware come out certainly they've they've talked about three new vr platforms or three new vr pieces of hardware that they're going to be launching as part of this this roadmap but I think there there's still are questions of stickiness. There's still questions of access. There's still questions of it needing to be tethered to like a much more powerful computer. So, and also Facebook doesn't have any success yet in hardware. So for, this is very ambitious. Uh, it's in you know in the market next to the Apple Watches of the world, and yep. Apple has set. E- equally ambitious targets around the things that its watch can do, particularly around um, blood sugar sensing and the diabetes space, yep. uh, which they haven't quite delivered on yet, but, you know, apparently they're close. They're, they're still working on the miniaturisation. Yeah. Mm. And, and they've been working on these AR glasses for apparently eight years mm. in, internally. What is what is perhaps uh, most frightening um, is when they start to talk about uh, the recoup, because obviously, you know, Meta and Facebook, they're fundamentally an advertising company. Um, and so they, they reckon they can 
make higher average revenue per user um, than what it makes currently in social. Um, and they've said the quote um, from Meta is, we should be able to run a very good ads business. I think it's easy to imagine how ads would show up in space when you have AR glasses on. Our ability to track conversions, which is where there has been a lot of focus as a company, should also be close to 100%. Wow. And it's like, cool, yeah. AR ads. Yeah. That's That's the world. But the other thing I take from that is that, you know, they say they're in the ad business and yes, but in terms of where they innovate, they haven't for a while. What they do is acquire. So they acquire all these other companies instead of innovating themselves and that's a cheaper model for them. No one's saying that's wrong in that, look, they're fairly successful on books, um, but they haven't continued to grow audience and that's a problem. And the idea that they're then engaged in this R&D on really tricky hardware they haven't actually managed to acquire complete hardware. You know, normally, you know, the acquisitions that have been successful have been much more mature. Yep. Um, so there are a lot of doubts on their capability to deliver. From an advertiser's point of view, my employer does uh, use, well, has used ads on Meta in the past. Yes. And the experience has, over the last six months become much worse for the really? advertisers. Really? Oh, that's interesting. So the metrics you're getting and that sort of real-time feedback. The uh, targeting is much worse. Yeah. It's much broader. The actual results. Yeah. Oh, wow. That makes sense with what we're experiencing as um, as audiences and, mm. and what we know about demographics there. Very interesting, Rachel. I love that. Um, Sticking with Meta yes. a little bit, uh, moving, moving from one uh, part of the hype cycle to another, um, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg has also uh, announced that uh, AI will soon be coming to WhatsApp, Messenger, Instagram, um, and their various other social platforms. This comes obviously on the back of AI being integrated into Bing, into Google search um, uh, incredibly rapidly. It just, it definitely feels like this year is just... This has more legs. This has more <laughs> legs than the hardware. I mean, we know it's achievable. Unlike the characters in the meta, the yeah. meta metaverse. Yeah, yeah. Will it be? Will it be good? Probably not. This is going to be another train wreck. Um, uh, <laughs> but will people love it? I mean, ChatGPT has proven incredibly sticky. I think. Uh, I mean, it's it's so hard to tell because I think we're still seeing the gaps uh, around that. Um, but they're they're committed to it. Um, Mark Zuckerberg has said that. He's putting together a new team uh, focused on building delightful experiences. Ex- sorry, building delightful experiences around this technology into all of our different products. Um, and it's going to be a top-level product group um, at Meta um, to turbocharge their work um, in this area. Um, and some of the examples are around Instagram filters and advertisements uh, and video-to-text generation. Um, yeah, it's it's. It was kind of inevitable given how much Google and Microsoft are, are pouring into it. I don't think Facebook's very good at naming things either. <laughs> and uh, we've seen a terrible series of names come out for all these AI products. We've had Google's Bard, Microsoft's Prometheus, obviously ChatGPT. It's got a ring to it, but it's not it great. It sounds nerdy. You know, and, and, and Bing going, <laughs> oh, I mean, you know. It's um, where do we even begin? We could do all. We could just ask all of these AI chatbots what to name themselves. Yeah, what that would feels you like prefer to be step. named? But then yeah. Bing went with Sydney, and that would have been very confusing for Australian users. I think very meta. Oh, how appropriate! Yeah, how appropriate. And yes. sticking sticking a little bit with AI um, and our favourite billionaire owner of a social media website, um, Elon Musk uh, has decided that he is going potentially. There's none of this is confirmed, but has gone has decided that um, OpenAI and ChatGPT um, are perhaps too woke. 
Um, <laughs> so he's looking at building out a, a lab. And I, I didn't realize until this news broke that um, Elon was one of the, the founders um, of OpenAI yes. originally. Um, Which is a good reason to mistrust. You know, just because you whack open protocols in front of everything doesn't actually mean that you're going to end up with an ethical, you know, product. Yeah, and, and he does point that out. He does say he wanted it to be open. He originally, his intent was for it to be mm. open source and mm. now it's become, you know, a closed source. Maximum profit company effectively controlled by Microsoft. Mm. Um it's interesting, you know, because obviously ChatGPT does have all of those filters and all of those kind of boundaries ostensibly in place to prevent, which, you know, potentially triggering or, or you yeah, know, yeah, which costs content. a lot of work to implement yep. and costs a lot of work to run, and then also there's a lot of wage slaves, you know, powering away doing the manual redaction elements of this. Yep. So there's a lot of problems in even achieving that sort of outcome. But similarly, a lot of problems in just letting um, AI run wild, as we yes. saw with that experiment <laughs> where I think it was Microsoft released a uh, Twitter chatbot and they had to sh- shut it down because like eight hours later it was massively racist. Yeah, it became a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. so uh, thanks AI. Oh, oh, oh. So we can look forward to that from all of our social media companies. There, I mean, there really is so much potential and I think that's the bit that's captured people's imaginations. They didn't realise that, you know, it could sort of evoke these emotions. And I think a really interesting place to look at development here is in the virtual dating sort of simulators and people, you know, forming faux relationships with these digital things. That is interesting to unpack. Like what are people getting out of that? How is it meeting emotional needs that people have? Um, In what ways might there be some good elements to that? I want to be very cautious around... (laughs) (laughs) Around uh, the overhype that's here, you know, you mentioned the hype cycle. We are definitely at peak hype. I mean, I think we're, we're what, three three months into a new year and, you know, we've got nine months to go. Let's let's revisit all of these AI things in December and see how we all feel about it. Love that plan. I'm sure Rachel can join us then as well. <laughs> awesome. Um, sticking with our AI news, uh, again, the idea of hype. Uh, and multi-billion organizations, uh, both the Commonwealth <laughs> Bank uh, and the ANZ, are exploring conversational AI use cases. Um, it's amazing how quickly that's happened for, you know, relatively... Yeah, banks can be conservative in adopting new tech. This yep. is pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because it's part of them announcing their latest uh, banking results and saying that they're investing in technology. Um, and, you know, amongst other kind of platforms, also looking at, you know, no-code platforms and, and kind of leveraging uh, access to data science. Um, but they're actively exploring and discussing ideas on how we'll make our bank better and stronger with this technology. Um, and it's interesting because while it talks about, you know, it sort of opens with this idea of conversational AI. Um, they're also talking about, you know, the range of applications in the bank, like the data pattern matching and cyber threats coming back to our mm. conversation about one Australia wanted to be uh, the world leader in cybersecurity. Um, and also they, they kind of signal, coming back to that point as well, there's a significant appetite for cyber talent that's hard to find. Yes. If we go back to what they're trying to do, integrating AI into their chat, I mean, there's nothing worse than a very limited prescriptive chatbot, and a lot of places have them. If we opened in good faith and went, okay, best case scenario, you've applied this AI, now it's much easier to follow through the process of what steps do I need to take to apply for a home loan with you? Or, you know, um, how can I check 
whether this is a phishing email or not. Yeah. You know, I mean, the maybe worry, that would be good. The worry then is that all of the AI is... Resp- I mean, I'm sure there already is like pattern matching and AI and a lot of those loan decisions, but yeah. the idea of it kind of being end-to-end without any no. sort of human intervention. No, I always love, you know, human in the model uh, <laughs> with AI. Just sitting in the middle going, is that right, little computer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good try, though. Good try. Thanks, yeah. thanks, little computer. Amazing. So, yeah, const- again, let's revisit this one in nine months and see how we actually feel about it. Um, I think, and no doubt we'll cover it uh, regardless no doubt. in between. No doubt. I'm sure there'll be some some learning moments Let's let's get away from AI, Vanessa. What what are Nokia up to? Nokia, look, I am. I don't know if listeners know. I'm pretty obsessed with the idea of modular and utilitarian kind of design of technology, and I particularly think that this is applicable in the mobile phone market, which is incredibly fragmented. You know, you've got uh, the dominant players, Apple with their iPhone, and but even that's quite fragmented in terms of how many versions are available at one time. And then you get into the Samsung market and that, you know, breaks down again. If you ever see one of those tree diagrams, you know, the squares and the squares, um, and, you, and you see the breakdown of, of the phone hardware market, it's just very difficult. And as someone who was a developer early in my career, I've got incredible empathy for people who have to make software for such a, a range of, of, um, of sort of platforms. It's very challenging. And not only that, I'm a big advocate of the right to repair movement. So the fact that it's expensive and costly and difficult and time-consuming and all these bad things to try and fix your phones when they go bad, and yet there's something, they're probably the most expensive thing you carry around all day. There's all these disconnects here for, you know, function and cost and how things should work. Uh, so... Nokia have released a G22 phone and the aim of this particular product is to be easily repairable. Now, from the ground up, they have partnered with um, iFixit, who are a big part of the right-to-repair movement. They started off putting a lot of um, DIY fixing manuals and things online and then forums and all these other ways to help people fix their own stuff. Um, and also then advocating for right to repair, which is a big regulatory issue as well. You know, so it's not as easy as just trying to design things well. You also have to have the environment in place where you're allowed to do yeah. these things without voiding manufacturer's yep. warranties. So that's why it's important that such a big name in phones has come up and then tried by design to focus on repairability as its key selling factor. And affordability, you know, uh, you're looking at like a $300-ish sort of phone. And it's got multi-day battery life. The things they focused on mostly were trying to, you know, uh, make things like screen replacement, battery changing. um, Like swapping uh, out the USB-C port. Yes, ports, that sort of thing, changeable. And lots of people have tried and failed before. And uh, so it's a it's a good new attempt. Um, how you know you want to be able to upgrade your cameras? Cameras improve much faster than the rest of the phone technology does. So it's. I think it's a fundamentally good idea and it's an audacious move by Nokia to go back in and try and reclaim some of that mobile phone market. Um, it really interests me. I want to see how it does. It's always going to be a niche product. Um, but I think you can make a really strong environmental case for this and a lot of other cases, I'm sure. Yeah, and also like being a niche product doesn't mean you're kind of not going to build a profitable company or a profitable yeah. audience around it. So I think it, it like, yeah, I totally agree. Well, it's, it's. I hope it's a green, you know, a green shoot that encourages, you know, more competition to do this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think um, 
I'm not, not sure if there's an Australian release date for it yet, but yeah, interesting to watch that that sort of develop. Um, the reviews so far are good, which is, yeah, which is good. tough to do <laughs> with hardware, new hardware. There you go. Cool. Um, kind of closing off with a little bit of public sector uh, service. Um, LastPass, who, as we probably have covered on the show, had a pretty significant data breach um, last, last year. Um, and sadly... Um, They've had another one. Uh, apparently their employee's home computer was hacked and a corporate vault was taken. Um, if you are still using LastPass, um, you might want to check out um, support.lastpass.com slash help uh, slash incident to additional details of the attack. It sounds And like remind people what LastPass does. LastPass is, yeah, Last yeah. is a password manager. Um, so the vaults that were accessed, they were all encrypted, um, but it's still a pretty significant data breach. And this, this new data breach breach um builds off the back of that earlier data breach but also has a some pretty significant social engineering and access to oh, like, it's just awful yeah. when your whole business is helping people keep their accounts secure and then you get breached it's just an awful look. yeah so there's there's full detail on on what was accessed in this most recent one um also steps that LastPass have taken um to both harden their aws storage and the network of the the employee who you know, yeah, the response was to this and all the, the timely sort of notifications and, and things seem to have been pretty good practice. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, it's essential if that's the, the core business mm. that you're in. But yeah, if you are if you are using LastPass, um, definitely check out um, what's happened with the incident and if you're likely to be affected. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Anyone who loves games these days probably loves spending a bit of time on Twitch and they may well have come across our next guest. It's 24-year-old Luna. She is one of Australia's most prominent LGBTIQA plus Twitch streamers. Uh, her username is Luminum. And despite her fame and status, she's one of the 67% of LGBTIQIA plus players who admit to turning their microphone off when playing to avoid harassment. So tonight we want to explore her experiences um, with you and um, I can't wait to hear more. Welcome to the show, Luna. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, I myself uh, was a gamer earlier in my life and... Um, I know exactly what it's like to be in in clans and go to LAN parties and be playing in, you know, multiplayer, first-person shooter sort of games all around the place. So I'd love to hear from you. How did you first get involved in this level of gaming, like moving from the personal to the, the multiplayer? Um, well, actually, I was at a really young age, my brother showed me like some games when I was like really young and I've always been a bit of a competitive person so I just love like multiplayer games and just like versing other people so yeah. Awesome I think it is something quite commonly that that um, uh, siblings get into together and um, I oh. certainly got into it with my my baby brother um, but you've got an interesting perspective on that because as a trans woman when you were first playing games presumably um, you were presenting as masculine. Yeah, um, so I was identifying as a boy before I transitioned, like when I 
for streaming and making videos and all. Like, when I first started, I actually already knew that I was going to get, like, people focusing on, like, my voice or whatever. So, mm. for a while, I actually, I actually didn't even use my voice. Like, I would just use, like, text on my videos. Um, but eventually I did use my voice and I did get a few people, like, you know, saying things like, oh, I didn't realize this person was gay. I'm not following anymore, whatever, which I expected, but, you know. Mm. And then later down the line, when I transitioned, then, you know, things kind of changed, but, like, still in the same line of people kind of discriminating against you and all. So, yeah. It's just incredible to think of the range of experiences that you have in that gaming world because oh. most of us only have, you know, one very defined perspective on that. And oh. I think that something that attracts so many people to games is indeed the anonymity and that perception of that sort of distance between uh, your, yourself and then the uh, the the self that you build out of fantasy and what's available in the games and how you want to present yourself in those games. Um, can you can you tell me a little bit about you know what games appealed to you, you know, and whether how you could present in games had any um, part of their appeal? Um, maybe back then in the day, I would I used to choose the more feminine characters and all, just like how they looked and all. But really nowadays, I kind of just play like what's fun to me. <laughs> yeah. And again, like I enjoy like really competitive games, and that kind of ranges from a few things like shooters or just like other genres and all so yeah I wonder if the measure of experienced gamers is that you move beyond the most attractive character I can build in some aspirational way to the what's the weirdest troll I can have with a double headed axe and a you know and uh let's just make myself green like let's do that (laughs) so you're part of this interesting campaign that wants to um encourage more uh, happy gaming experiences and a more safe community environment. Can can you tell us, you know, why that's important to you and what you would like to see come out of the campaign? Well, I think it's important because obviously so many people, female identifying gamers, just like deal with like so much toxicity just for who they are. Um, and like, but that shouldn't be. Like, people just want to play games. They just want to like enjoy themselves. Like, there's no reason why someone should have to focus on someone being a girl or trans or whatever and, like, give them so much shit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like that, you know, for, for the people that are, like, transphobic or sexist or whatever, they're most likely not going to change, honestly. But hopefully the people that can change are the people that are usually bystanders. And, you know, the more people that, like, recognize this problem and can, like, stand up and say, like, hey, this is not okay, like, the better, right? Like, Mm. it will hopefully be, like, a snowball effect, like, more people standing up and saying this is not okay, and then more people will try to follow and, like, see how that's not good. Like, you know, they need to speak up. So considering how enmeshed, at least when I played, trash talking was in gaming culture, you know, how big a gap do you think there is to go before we can create safe spaces? Does that mean the elimination of trash talk or does it mean like an evolution there? And, you know, what would your view of like a really great outcome be? Hmm, I don't really know if we'll get to like a perfect state or like even like a really good state like mm. anytime soon. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I think it it depends on like what different like role genders and different um, things require different um, solutions. So like for example, when it comes to sexism, usually the thing that people see or like the guys, the sexist people see is like girl gamers are like not as good or you know they're inferior or whatever. So I think for that problem, the solution is to just like over time welcome more girl gamers and like have things that support it because like sometimes there are some games that have female only esports organizations mm. and. Um, teams and all and that's really great because it just like promotes like a healthy environment for girl gamers to just like thrive in and then hopefully it like facilitates like more um talent and hopefully you know girls can get onto the same level as guys in terms of skill and like perception for for the sexist people and then slowly but surely like you know, people will see like, oh, you know, there's no difference between like a girl game or a guy game. Like they can be on the same level because really at the end of the day, it's not like there is some sort of like differences in brain or anything. Yeah. It's just like culture, you know, yes. like yes. guys have been brought up to play games from a very young age. Like people will be playing like shooting games or whatever, like at the age of five, but girls kind of start later in life because yeah. like when they... Uh, like growing up or whatever, like they're more nudged into different kind of things. Like, oh, you shouldn't be playing games. You should be doing other things or whatever. Yes, it's not because of a lack of interest. Yes, it's opportunity. It's a lack of experience Mm. and all. Um, Digital Australia's 2022 report found that uh, 46% of Australian gamers are women and Mm -hmm. uh, female identifying and then they uh, a different a different report in this year the national gamer survey by bastion insights found that um 83% of female identifying gamers have directly experienced or observed offensive behavioural language while online gaming. I'm surprised it's not higher frankly, but <laughs> but we can sort of see how, you know, how that starts to already create an unsafe environment. And then we hear that 73% would consider that the harassment they receive online is severe. Now, that is a much more shocking, you know, high number where it's not just seeing things and it's not just offensive, it's actually harassment. Mm. Um, Are there some behaviours that you can call out in, say, you know, bystanders in these situations that that you'd like to to see that can help in this, this environment? Um, I mean, just, like, even simply saying things like, hey, this is not okay, or, like, you know, calling out, like, the weirdness of people. It's, like, honestly, like, for me, like, being trans, like, sometimes, like, I'm just minding my own business or whatever, and then all of a sudden someone is, like, attacking or harassing me, just, like, for being trans. Like, they're disgusted at me, and they, they really want to let me know that they're disgusted at me or whatever. They're, like, talking so much um, stuff. And, you know, that's kind of, like, weird behavior, honestly. And just, like, even someone standing up and saying, like, hey, like, just, you're being weird. Like, just stop. Like, chill. And, yes. like, enough, I feel. And for yeah, anyone who know. hasn't twitched before, you know, there is a live sort of stream of commentary going on while someone's live streaming. So, you know, oh. it actually is quite distracting and can be intrusive, you know, for something that's meant to be participatory and, and collaborative. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, on a fact, I have, like, a great deal of shaming, and then all it takes is, like, one person to, like, ruin that, honestly. Mm, mm, definitely. Um, did you ever go through a phase where you had to turn off your microphone just to avoid harassment so people wouldn't be prejudging you based on what you sound like? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't, like, turn off my mic. I would just, like, and already expect that I would get, like, things said to me. So I'm just like, oh, I won't say anything. Like, it's just, it's better not to. Like, because people will just focus on it, right? Like, yeah. if it's, like, playing a game and I'm trying to strategize or, like, I know, like, something I should say, but I can already feel that someone's probably going to focus on how I sound rather than what I'm saying, I just, like, won't say anything because it's just easier that way. So did anything prepare you for those experiences before you became a gamer? Like, did anyone talk to you about, you know, this is what it's going to be like? Or, you know, do you think there was a way you could have been better prepared? Um, I mean, I already knew of, like, the gaming culture, like, before I streamed and um, made content. So I already knew, like, all the trash talking that was possible. <laughs> um, but in terms of, like, the specifics of, like, when I was gay boy or, like, when I transitioned. Um, no, not really. Nothing really, like, really affected me. Other than just seeing other people and, like, other content creators or whatever and then seeing, like, the comments on their side, yeah. like, then I could anticipate, like, oh, like, I'm sure, like, this has happened to me as well. I wondered because, you know, in other life experiences as you're growing up, often your parents or other trusted, you know, older people try and give you a bit of guidance. It's like, you're going to try something new. You're going to hop on a BMX bike. Here's some tips, you know, and yet I feel like there's such a low level of literacy in these sort of experiences that it can be very hard to get any good advice. Um, What sort of advice would you like to put out there? Because presumably you still want to encourage people to be um, having fun with games. Mm. Um, I think really the best thing you can do, because ultimately you can't really do anything about the toxicity. Mm. Like, it's not like, you know... Except to be part of this healthy movement, but yes, I I get you. Yeah, you can't really, like, stop the toxicity, like, at its core, like, the people that are hateful. Mm -hmm. Um, So your best option is to really just focus on the positives, like people that support you, people that love you, you know, your friend groups, your family, whatever, like people that you are happy around and just focus on your focus your energy on that really. Well, Luna, you're part of this Through Your Eyes campaign. It's part of the Brave Together program. It's a global initiative committed to destigmatizing the conversation around anxiety and depression. And also, you know, it has this games element. I, I think it's incredible that you're standing up and, you know, giving voice to these issues. And being a real, you know, public Australian Twitch superstar. So thanks so much for sharing your story with us this evening. Um, Do you want to share anything about, you know, something that you're loving out there at the moment in the games world? Um, Thank you for having me as well. I just want to say that. Oh, Um, it's a pleasure. At the moment, like, honestly, I'm not really too sure what I'm liking because I feel like gaming has kind of slowed down. We haven't really had any new releases. I'm just kind of like praying that there's something fun that's coming up. Classic post-Christmas vibes, yes. Mm. (laughs) All right, that's absolutely fair. Well, all I can do is highly recommend that um, any listeners who are into catching up with Twitch streams and and, um, catching up with what's amazing in games, check out Luminum. 
on Twitch. Uh, we might tweet that out later so you can get the spelling right. Uh, that's the easiest way to find it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. All right, cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You would bite into it and, uh, yeah, we're in a good space. That was very energetic. Uh, we've got Rachel Paul and I'm Vanessa here and uh, you may have heard it on the Breakfasters already, but if you haven't, there is a new Pokemon uh, brand coming out. It's Pokemon Sleep because Sleep needed branding and, gosh, Pokemon needed the the reputation boost. They can't just have people going out there accidentally wandering into the path of cars. They've also got to encourage people to sleep. So this is my cynical take on what Pokemon Sleep is doing. It is a sleep tracker <laughs> and it rewards you with finding little Pokemon beasties Um while you're in different phases of sleep. So it is doing that sleep tracker thing where it's like, are you in deep REM sleep? Are you, you know, how much time did you spend here and there? And I wonder if it's going to give you actually all that pseudo health feedback or if it's only going to give you, you got a Snorlax and a whatever. <laughs> like, uh, I regretfully uh, have to tell you that I am still a Pokemon Go player. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, your, that's your guilt. You have I to just, deal with that. <laughs> I wanted to be, I just, I really like the cute little monsters. And I find it quite a stress reliever if I'm in transit or something. Anyway, I'm that person. You'll see me playing it and being like, what is that grown And now you can play doing? it, like, without moving. Like, literally lying still, completely still. I mean, maybe this is a good move. Uh, what What is your take on this, Paul? What I mean, are they trying I mean, to do? It's, you know, I mean, inevitably, gamifying sleep <laughs> just, <laughs> like, just feels like... Like the step, it's like, hey, we've got you moving. Now let's get you not moving. Cover all our bases. Um, what are they going to introduce? A work, a Pokemon work. <laughs> the eight hours split. Um, are they linked? So, well, good question. Um, I would think yes, because the whole point of the Pokemon network these days is that you can link the games to each other, do various clever trading of Pokemons between things, and indeed of players on different platforms. So uh, I mean, they've done a big push on linking to the Switch game. Lately. Yeah, and they have announced a new device um, called the Pokemon Go Plus, uh, Plus um, which is a, a new version of the Pokemon Go companion device. And it, it works as both a sleep tracker for Pokemon Sleep uh, and as a tool for playing Pokemon Go. I thought you were going to say, and as a home spy. Like, a you home know. spy. <laughs> we uh, know when you're sleeping. We know when you're awake. We're the same colours as Santa Claus. <laughs> it's all, there's a tie-in there waiting to happen. Pokemon nanny cam. Yes. Inevitably, yes. inevitably all our devices right. will be Pokemon branded. It's a bit of silliness, um, but will I try it? I don't know. I'm vaguely tempted in Van- a way I haven't been by the Switch. Vanessa, you will 100% oh, try that. Oh, stop it. Okay. All right. I'll report back. Watch this space. Don't watch this space. That's creepy. All right. Don't ask your Pokemon to watch this space. No, uh, no. Speaking of, as we were, uh, a dystopian future uh, <laughs> of devices monitoring themselves, um, Ford, uh, the car company, uh, have attempted to patent uh, basically cars uh, that can uh, repossess themselves. Um, and it's interesting when you actually kind of look through the patent, that's kind of the headline that, that's circulating because that's pretty scary. But it, it's broader than that. Um, it's got what they call a multi-step repossession procedure um, which is what they call uh, in the document so if you're behind in your car payments first up you would get a little notification uh, on your you know in-car dashboard or in-car screen if you don't do that um, 
then there'll be another one. And then if you don't respond to that one, basically the car goes a bit uh, out of control, a little bit aggressive. So they, they floated, maybe they'll disable your air conditioning. Maybe they'll disable your automated key. Maybe they'll disable your GPS or your music. Oh, maybe so they'll many lawsuits waiting to happen. Maybe they'll actually activate an audio component in the vehicle to emit an incessant and unpleasant sound every time the owner <laughs> is present inside the vehicle. Yeah. It, I mean, you can't you can't challenge them with a lack of creative thinking. However, you wonder how this one got through the gate when they're thinking, okay, we've got these abilities to track cars out there. Instead of solving um, car robberies, we're going to solve the repossession underpayment for car loans problem. I mean, this is just a patent. This doesn't mean that it's going to find its way into, uh, you know, the next vehicle that you buy. And obviously, like a car that can, if you don't keep up the loans, can drive itself back to, <laughs> back to the dealer is is some way off. Given that we we are nowhere near self driving cars. Um, I mean, it does raise the question of like if a car is repossessed and it's driving back to the lot and there is an accident. You know, the questions of my, you know, major liability. It's like a horrible version of the trolley problem. Yes, um, but. Yeah, this yeah. this this is yeah. uh, you know this is the weird news segment, and that feels like weird news. Yes, it is possibly inspired by the cars that ate Paris. Yes, very good. <laughs> the cars that were repossessed and then consumed Paris. Uh, Repo Man's going to have a whole new uh, sequel. That's great. Uh, a Swiss IT manager who has amassed a collection of Apple hardware has decided to part with it, creating a complete honeypot for Apple collection nerds. It's going up for auction. It has an estimated price of up to, um, well, one of the items has an estimated price alone of up to 20,000 US dollars, which is incredible. And that is the 1983 Lisa. Uh, Yes, the naming of computing products (laughs) has not improved over all these years, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) Um, Wow, Lisa has, has twin floppy drive uh, holes. I think they're floppies. Yeah, they look like three. Well, we're just looking at a picture, and I think that looks like it's maybe five in the larger ones. I can't, I've forgotten the dimensions. I would have known that as a younger nerd, but really? like not anymore. You were that nerd. <laughs> that, that was definitely that nerd. Big chunky keyboard. Um, if that if that's something you're looking for, and tiny, a tiny, tiny, tiny screen. <laughs> we're all thinking that. Thanks. Like, oh, people worked on that. The keyboard's bigger than the screen. Um, yeah, look, look, 500 Apple computers and related accessories are, are looking to be auctioned off. Um, and it dates back uh, from 1977 um, to 2008. So a pretty significant um, chunk of history. I think people were, were saying that, that they've got that first model iPhone, which is the real cash cow. That yep. is the one that people are still want to get your, their hands on. Still got it in its shrink wrap. Yes, The yes. dream, the as, dream. As they pray to the, to the Steve Jobs <laughs> idol, yes. Hmm, it's a, it's a very... Very particular demographic that that's for. Yeah, speaking of very specific demographics, mm. as you were, Vanessa, um, kind of reported, we're looking at looking at this, uh, kind of a couple of websites today, um, but uh, a Chinese kissing device uh, has been revealed. It lets you smooch people over the internet. Um, it has a very, again, we're looking at an image of this. Uh, it's got a, a... It's been just a matter of time. Creep, creepy, creepy little, creepy little mouth. Um, They've but the, stolen the mouth from the end of that uh, character in Star Wars in the cantina. <laughs> 
with the with the long tube thing, and then it sings in the jazz club. I think you've yeah. just opened up the market yeah, for this product go, there with that single that single uh, statement. Um, look, the device has been advertised as a way to let long distance couples share real uh, in uh, inverted commas, unsurprisingly, physical intimacy, um, and it's causing a lot of buzz among Chinese social media users who have reacted uh, in this article with both intrigue. <laughs> and, and shock. Shock, um, shock and intrigue. The device is equipped with pressure sensors and actuators, um, and it's uh, said to be able to mimic a real kiss by replicating the pressure, the movement, and the temperature of a user's lips. Can I just say, gross? <laughs> Let's never do this. And it looks like, you know, a miniature version of what a massage chair is going to deliver, like rolly devices underneath a fake skin. Oh, it's just gross. Anyway. I, just, I, need to, I need to just close off that with, um, obviously, it can make the motion and it can, it can be the heat, oh. but it can also transmit the sounds that a user makes. I hate myself for asking, but, you know, are we talking kisses with tongue or no tongue? Look... I think that oh. is, that is a question that we will research for the All next right, show because I am not comfortable <laughs> answering. Or we can just drop it. That's also good. You know, it's been an amazing night. I think we've learned a lot. Uh, there's so much happening in the Australian sector. There's so much to be, you know, cautious about <laughs> globally. Um, let's let's be safe out there, people, with those kissing devices on the loose. Um, you just never know. It's been a thrill to, to chat to Luna, one of Australia's... Um, biggest Twitch streamers all about online harassment and some of the things that people are doing about it. Um, chase them up at Luminum on Twitch. Uh, thank you, Paul, for being a co-host tonight and doing a lot of heavy lifting, finding the weirdest news we've seen in a while. <laughs> uh, My pleasure. Yes, you should be very proud. Rachel, thank you for your excellent tune selection and keeping us on track this week. It's been awesome to have you. We'll have you any time. My pleasure. I've been Vanessa. I've just been happy to be here, frankly. Um, thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, our podcaster, Carrie Smythe. We've been bite into it and we will be back next Wednesday evening. Until then, stay tuned for the delightful International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew that will be coming up pretty soon. Cheers. Hi, this is Vanessa Deholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.